Jack, the check is in the mail. Sorry it's two years late. Sorry I misfigured my checking account and I'm overdrawn. Sorry I stopped payment on it. So when it comes, tear it up. Sorry. Welcome to 200 a Day, the podcast where we explore the 70s television detective show, The Rockford Files. I'm Nathan Paletta. And I'm Epidiah Ravishaw. And we are uh, welcoming you back to season two of, uh, of The Rockford Files with the episode uh, that we're talking about today. Season 2, episode 14, The Hammer of C-Block. Yes. To frame our discussion, I wanted to start by issuing a an apology to Epi. <laughs> because when I picked this episode, I was kind of thinking, oh, we've only done one of the Gandhi episodes. This mm-hmm. centers around the, the recurring Isaac Hayes played character Gandalf Finch. Uh, the first time we saw this character was in Just Another Polish Wedding, which was one of our uh, earlier episodes, going all the way back to uh, episode six of this program. And uh, I think we, we found that one very charming. We liked both of those characters, uh, Gandalf yeah. Finch and uh, the the uh, the Gabby character. And so I was kind of like, there are a number of these. We should do another one. Let's do the first one. However, while I had remembered the character and the premise of the episode, I'd completely forgotten the dramatic arc and ending. So while I proposed it in a spirit of let's have a lighthearted fun episode, it turns out that this one is a little uh, a little a little heavier than anticipated in uh, in my brain. Or at least that's what I discovered upon my rewatch. Me too. I, I sat down and I was like, yeah, this will be fun uh, to to give our viewers, wait, to give our listeners some context. <laughs> uh, this is the week after taxes are due. It's, it, we're, <laughs> we're, right, we're both uh, coming down from some uh, just stressful work stuff and, and whatever. And uh, it was like, yeah, it's time to sit back, relax. Uh, good old James Gardner will... Uh, Make everything all right. <laughs> oh boy. Sucker punch. Yeah, poor choice. As prequels are wont to do. <laughs> Which is not to say that it's a bad episode. It's actually, no, I think, a very good episode, but it's a bit of a bummer. Um, and also, a uh, content note at the top that the episode itself really goes pretty deep into uh, an abusive relationship um, yeah. and uses some pretty straightforward language about it. So we will be talking about that yeah, just I, so our listeners know. A, phys- a, a physically and emotionally abusive relationship. Yeah, I was going to say, yeah, uh, content warning wise, domestic abuse and suicide are themes here. It is not on screen in the episode. Yes. yes. But it is intrinsic to uh the story and and the character so yeah we'll be talking about it that's all yeah um yeah this uh this episode was written by gordon t dawson who we talked a little bit in depth about in our uh episode 45 the trees the bees and tt flowers which is only a couple episodes back uh because he wrote that one as well and in that episode i found a reference to this episode where uh, Dawson says that the name Gandalf Finch came from a typo in his manuscript. Oh. He was originally uh, writing something like Randolph and typoed it to a G and just liked how it sounded. So yeah. that's how we get this, what I think is an extremely memorable name of uh, Gandalf, uh, spelled G-A-N-D-O-L-F or Gandhi, as uh, Isaac Hayes' character will mostly be called in the episode. 
And and before we get into the nitty gritty of the episode and maybe soil this joke a little bit, <laughs> what is probably a reiteration of a joke I've made some other time, uh, but I would love to see Lord of the Rings adaptation with Gandalf Finch as the as the Gandalf as Gandalf just muscling everyone through things. <laughs> there would be so much more punching. Yes, uh, it just physical threats and. Mm-hmm. There's just no, there's no mystery to what the wizard's powers are. <laughs> His powers are punching and a lack of impulse control. Yes. Um, this uh, episode was also directed by Jerry London. I say also because he also directed The Trees, The Bees, and T.T. Flowers. So we talked about him a little in that episode as well. I think we have now tipped fully into he has directed more good episodes than mediocre ones in our overall watch. Uh, and this particular episode has some really interesting kind of discovery shots, um, of characters throughout. And I think generally is going for a, you know, more gritty, this is more on the, on the grittier end of a Rockford Files, uh, tonally and kind of how it's shot and, uh. Yeah, there's some interesting camera angles that, uh, come up throughout it. Um, yeah, I, I've got some of my notes here. We could talk about them when they come up, but yeah. We're well into the second season, so they have their stride now. So oh, yeah. this feels, I guess, more, I don't want to say it's like a departure, but just showing off the spectrum of the Rockford Files mm-hmm. rather than trying to find their footing with what what kind of show it's going to be here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this really doesn't have a lot of the um, formula elements. Um, I mean, it's, it's essentially a Rockford helps a friend who's in trouble in a weird way. Yeah, he's not a friend yet. <laughs> it's also kind of a social issue episode, but it's not really about a particular... It's not about an issue writ large. It's more about yeah what happens when, like, systemic pressures push people into lives that they maybe otherwise would not have chosen. Yeah. Um, so it's not on the nose about it. It's more... That's more my read uh, based on how things come out in the end. But yeah, it doesn't really have, like, too much typical Rockford uh, notes. Um, it's much more about the... It's, it's about Gandhi. Yeah. And Rockford's very important. He's not around. He's not just around for the ride in this one. Uh, it is very much a... a, a, a the two of them are, are making it happen. In contrast with uh, A Very Polish Wedding, where Rockford is... He's got his own adventure going on. Yeah. Uh, this is... Um, he's very front and present in this yeah. one. Um, well, speaking of... Rockford and Gandhi being our uh, duo of the day, Epi, what about them did you see in our preview montage? <laughs> well, I like that our preview montage uh, has, oh, I, you know, I don't know if it's a joke in the cut or not, but like immediately we got Gandhi saying, I want you to f- find out who killed Lila McGee. McGee, right? Uh, yeah, I don't remember her last well, name. Well, Lila. But Lila. Yeah, so he's, he, you know, Gandhi's like, I want you to find out who killed Lila. And then we cut immediately to someone to say, he killed him. <laughs> he killed him. No question. Like, yeah. And we get a good Star Trek uh, Dr. Bones <laughs> line. <laughs> I'm a PI Gandhi, not an artillery spotter. Um, <laughs> and uh, we get our first mention of Rockfish. Yeah. Yes. Those of you who are big Rockfish fans. Yeah. Um, this is this is where this originated. Yeah, we end the, the preview montage with Jim's knock off that Rockfish stuff. It's Rockfish. Forward, <laughs> and that's actually a thing. A theme uh, I'll probably be addressing throughout this episode is the status play. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's one of the uh, 
the great things about this particular relationship. Rockford is the victim of Gandhi's bullying mm-hmm. uh, throughout, and it's just how it's going to be. Thanks for listening to 200 a Day. This podcast is supported by all of our listeners, but especially our patrons at patreon.com slash 200 a Day. If you're digging the show and want to help us keep on making it, you can join them for just $1 an episode. Each episode, we extend a special thanks to our gumshoe-level patrons. This time, we say thank you to Jim Crocker. In addition to supporting the show, he also sells our games at conventions east of the Mississippi. See where to find him at Jim Likes Games on Twitter. Shane Liebling. If you play games online, you should check out his free dice rolling app, Roll for Your Party, at rollforyour.party. Kevin Lovecraft. Hear him on the RPG Actual Play podcast, the Wednesday Evening Podcast All-Stars, over at misdirectedmark.com. Dylan Winslow, Dale Norwood, Bill Anderson, and Dave P. And finally, big thanks to Victor DeSanto and to Richard Haddam, who you can find on Twitter, at Richard Haddam. Help out the show by leaving a rating or review wherever you get your podcasts, and check out patreon.com slash 200 today to see if you want to be our newest gumshoe. We start our episode with an absent Rockford. Uh, he has yet to be bullied. Yeah. We have a really, really fun beginning. That's just the camera following Isaac Hayes, Gandalf Finch, uh, or Gandalf Fitch, excuse Fitch. me. Fitch, yeah, I keep With the T, I keep saying it with an N, but Fitch. Fitch, Fitch, Fitch. Mr. Fitch, if you will, uh, getting off of a bus, credits rolling as he walks up to the strangely wooden door of Jim's trailer. <laughs> um, and this is underscored by a song. Yes. Uh, according to, to 30 Years of the Rockford Files, this is a song that uh, Isaac Hayes wrote and performed for this episode. It's not, oh, I was, it's not like in his discography anywhere. I was thinking about that because as far as I can think, this is unique amongst the Rockford Files that we have a song with lyrics. Yeah. I think so. Like, there's even times where they mention songs and they don't do it. Because mm-hmm. they're probably not going to pay anyone for rights to it, a recorded song, right? Exactly. That's what, like, so I was like, oh, they're not. So I assumed it was Isaac Hayes because they already have him. Why mm-hmm. not? Yeah, but I, I had a note where I was like, look up this song. Yeah. Apparently it's just called Gandhi's Theme and he wrote it and performed it for this episode of The Rock for Files. All right, so now all I want is uh, a cut of all of the Lord of the Rings trailers with that song over top of it. <laughs> Somebody out there, just make that for me. But yeah, we so kind of underscored by Gandhi's theme. A very sad song. It's very sad. Melancholy, yeah. We have a montage just to establish that he's sitting there for a long time of him sitting on the stoop, going through a whole packet of cigarettes, watching people on the beach. And then when Rockford finally arrives, this is the first of those kind of interesting shots to me. Yeah. Where we, we see Gandhi through Rockford's dirty window, yeah. which again is one of the few times that I can re- remember his like any shots out of the car looking through dirty glass. Right. Most of the time, yeah. just it's for TV, so it's you know pretty clean so you can see what's going on. But I think this obviously is an intentional decision, uh, maybe just for tone. Also, there's a line later in a, in a minute where Jim has been driving for like 12 hours. So like the yeah. car is filthy because he's been driving all over California. I noted that shot as well. Uh, <clears throat> again, I think for the same reasons, like it's uh, it stands out a little bit because it's different for the show. It's something that one thing we'll see in this show 
is that there's certain themes and motifs that uh, they do a really good job of bringing back and pushing through. Uh, I guess I don't want to say anything on it until we get to some of these spots. So <laughs> let me just shut up right now and we'll continue. <laughs> All right. Well, I look forward to uh, seeing what exactly you're talking about. Oh, I, I don't. I don't want to create any sort of anticipation. I okay. don't know anything. <laughs> <laughs> But uh, yeah, so we we start off our show proper with uh, Gandhi and Jim kind of uh, having their first <laughs> their first little interaction here. Oh man, how to even describe? So okay, the basic thing that's going on here. Yes, Gandhi's out of jail. He's been in jail for twenty years on a murder charge. Yes, of the of of his uh, uh, his his lady his. They were not married, which is important, but, you know, the woman that he was seeing, that he loved. Yes. And he went to jail in the 50s, which I think is another important thing. That'll come up over and over again. He just doesn't understand modern, (laughs) the modern world, which is 1976, I think. Yeah, 75. Uh, It aired in January 76. So shot in 75. Yeah. So he went to jail for her murder. Um, Yes. You know, he has maintained the entire time his innocence, that he didn't kill her. But he's been in jail since 1955. Now he's out and he's come to see Rockford. <laughs> there, There's a reason, but it's leading up to the real reason, right? Uh, apparently, yeah. they when Jim was in jail, he was in jail with Gandhi. And at some yes. point, Jim incurred some kind of debt and owes Gandhi $1,500. Now, I naively ran this through an inflation calculator, but it occurred to me that I don't know when that occurred in the past 20 years. We know it's within the past 20 years, and we know it's when Jim was in jail, but we don't know how long ago that was. There is a a line about a five-year-old debt. Okay, let me give that a shot then, because we can't, uh, I'm not going to let this go without without having an exact amount here. Mm -hmm. I mean, he's asking for just the principal on it that comes out to uh just over about two thousand eighty dollars right so Mm uh he's like 500 over 500 dollars less than what the actual amount is by by inflation right like Mm -hmm. he he asked for 1500 but if you count for inflation he should be asking for 2000 and change i'm inclined to to like Andy at this point (laughs) is what i'm saying oh boy Oh boy! Uh, well, Jim is is in no mood for this. He just lost a finder's fee for something. He says he drove nine hundred miles in twelve hours, and <laughs> he is not having a good day. That is a formula uh, uh, element. Jim not having a good day. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so Jim, you know, he he's a little short, right? He doesn't have that money. Um, <laughs> and then Gandhi grabs him by the collar and just gives him a solid gut punch. <laughs> Showing off uh, his his recourse, right? If he doesn't right. get what's owed, um, as we will see over and over, he goes right to right to his fists. Jim starts listing all the things that he could potentially sell to <laughs> get this money for Gandhi, but he says that he will take it. He said, "Yeah, he says hide or services." Yeah, right? take like it. Yeah, in hide or services. And Jim, being particularly uh, uh, appreciative of his own hide and having services to offer, says services. Yeah, uh, and so this is where Gandhi, I think, his true motivation comes comes out. He was in jail for twenty years for a murder he didn't do. So if Jim can 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 solve who did murder Lila, that'll yeah. settle their debt. I I love the way Jim's delivery of services there, where he's it's a question. There's a a weird threat 
in in how Jim, not coming from Jim, but Jim's, he's either going to beat me up or he wants something else from me that's got to be worse than beating me up, right? Like right. just the way he <laughs> delivers that is like he like oh god, what are the services <laughs> like? Are, but no, it's he's a PI. He wants him to be a PI. So we we go from from here into the trailer. I was perfectly satisfied with the premise of okay, Jim will do this service and that'll clear his debt. But then yeah. we get some we get into the weeds on exactly how much <sighs> he can work for that amount of money that he yes. owes. This is not a blanket. I'll do what you want and we're square. He wants to make sure that the work he's doing is commiserate with the actual uh, debt that he has. Yeah. How his fee is $200 a day plus expenses and Gandhi. Yes. Nobody costs 200 a day. And that's when we get the first. It's not 1955 anymore. Yes. And uh, that one, for the record, uh, is almost 100% inflation. So when he says 200 a day to Gandhi, that sounds like 400 a day. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, I have no idea what that would be in our years. Haven't we established in the past that 200 a day is basically like a grand a day? If we were rounding to kind of, you know, the nearest. Yeah, it's, it's about a grand. But this, so this would be, this will feel like... <laughs> About almost $2,000 a day for Gandhi, right? Like somebody saying, okay, $2,000. Yeah, it's a lot. So uh, they, they run some math. And so Gandhi's like, okay, so I have you for seven and a half days. Yes. <laughs> and Jim says, plus expenses. But Gandhi, he'll forget yes. the interest if Jim yes. forgets the expenses. Which right. I appreciate that handshake uh, part of it. Where it's like, okay, let's not get too, we don't need receipts here, right? Yeah. But we we see where, where Gandhi, he's really, he, he keeps reiterating uh, that this woman who's killed was his lady. He loved her. He didn't kill her, kill her. He doesn't even, I mean, this is kind of implied, but he doesn't even say that he wants to clear his name. He wants yeah. to find the person that killed her. Mm-hmm. Then we get a, a good gag where Jim asks where he's going to stay. And he says, here, you have a couch. Um, Jim has this whole thing about he still owes Rocky for renovating the trailer or something. I was a little unclear about what that, that might all be your about. wooden door. Um, but that he can't he can't afford to keep Gandhi around. And then uh, Gandhi, basically, in order to imply I'll stay wherever I want, crushes his beer can with one hand. Jim looks at it and says, "They went to aluminum in '62. Everyone <laughs> can do that now." And he crushes his beer can. Which is something that I that had always kind of flown over my head as a as that that trope of crumpling a beer can with your hand to demonstrate that you're strong. Yeah, I never realized that was an actual thing that would have been an indicator of strength because it has always been in like comedies and stuff and like little kids doing it and stuff like that. But I guess that must come from the era of steel cans when or like crushing them on your head or something like that. Well, you think about Popeye cartoons where he crushed, like those are cans that spinach still comes in this tin can. Mm-hmm. And I don't think I could Popeye a can of spinach. <laughs> I mean, I've been hitting the gym. Right. I mean, it shows, right? Mm-hmm. You can see yeah. It. You can see it. I can see it through the internet. <laughs> I can hear your gains in your voice. Yes. <laughs> but um, I'm still not at Popeye. Right. So, but yeah, it definitely like it. it uh, I think it probably went over my head as well uh, that it just isn't a strong thing. Yeah. Uh, that it, that it probably was something that strong people could do, and weak people would just get sand kicked on them when they tried. But also that Jim calls out the specific date. I appreciate. Yes. <laughs> yeah, it's very Jim. It, what's delightful nowadays is to see the cans that they are 
oh yeah crumpling mm-hmm. are so old <laughs> <laughs> with the pull top and oh yeah yeah they're delightful um so jim uh reluctantly as may be is on the case so of course he goes to see our good friend dennis becker about it as it was a police matter it was not in his jurisdiction because it was in pasadena but uh his buddy over there is not happy to hear that Gandhi's out of jail. Apparently, he put eight cops in the hospital while he was getting arrested, which is terrifying. We will we will come back to that later because there's a photo of it that they discuss, and it's great. Uh, Dennis makes some comment about how it's a little a little strange that he was in jail for so long. I forget exactly how it comes up, but uh, Jim explains that he was too valuable on the inside to let out because yeah. Apparently, when, when, when new cons came into the jail, they'll put them in C-block for what they called indoctrination. And that no one wanted to be cellmates with Gandhi again after that or something like that. Uh, so we, we get the implication there that Jim went through said system and that uh, Gandhi's not a, not a nice guy. He really likes to beat people up. But hence the, the hammer of C-block, as the yeah. title title says. I think an interesting thing here is, so Dennis lays out how, you know, they had him like cold on this murder rap. He didn't have an alibi. He was known for like beating her up. She, there wasn't anyone else around. He was the last person to see her alive and that she died from a knife wound with his, a knife that had his fingerprints all over it. Um, And Jim, in this conversation, I think we see that he also doesn't really believe Gandhi that yeah. he's been hired under what Gandhi said he's hired him for. He's like, maybe he wants me to find someone else out uh, or track yeah. down someone who squealed on him or something like that. He says that it's not the first time he's been used as a bird dog. Oh, uh, yeah, that's such a great line. His choices are either to, to hang tough until the debt is paid or go visit his Aunt Nancy in Minnesota. <laughs> and then Dennis, Dennis is like, just keep him out of my district. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that is ever helpful, mm-hmm. ever concerned about his friend's well-being. I just don't want to deal with them. Yeah. I think there's a question slash current here that I didn't really start thinking about until later in the episode. Because so, so Jim does a lot of keeping Gandhi happy. Yeah. And I think that is not necessarily one to one with believing what Gandhi is saying. Yes. And it kind of ends up syncing up at the end uh, or at a certain scene later in the episode. Now that we're going back through the episode, I'm kind of trying to see where and when Jim is kind of giving tells of whether he believes Gandhi or not. Yeah, it's he's playing Gandhi because he's he wants to get out of this debt. Yeah, like Gandhi, it's he's an interesting character, a very interesting character at this point, right? Because he's obviously physically threatening and he's willing to do violence. And we will learn that uh he had a profession in doing that. Mm-hmm. We'll also find out that this bit about him beating Lila is is true. Uh, but at this point, it's up in the air, mm-hmm. whether that's part of a frame-up, maybe. Uh, we don't know the truth of what's going on with Gandhi. Uh, and Rockford is he's, he's almost pulling an a, a angel here, right? Mm-hmm. Like, he, like, angel would be a little more... Uh, angel, right? <laughs> Be a little more but, uh, squirrely about it. Yeah, but as long as he can keep Gandhi happy and keep Gandhi where he can see him, everyone is safer, right? And I think that's what's happening right now yeah. is that he's he's doing what needs to be done to keep everyone safe, right? Yeah. Um, 
Gandhi wants to see his attorney and uh, his his old attorney from when he got thrown in jail. Uh, you know, he knows where the place was, so he demands that Jim just drive there while Jim's like, we could look him up in the phone book. But no, no, Gandhi knows better because 20 years ago, this, uh, you know, this lawyer was over here. And of course, that storefront is now a, uh, at first I thought it was a, like a strip club, but I think it's just a adult store. Yeah. It's just an adult, like dirty magazines and whatnot. Yeah. The old guy at the counter, however, recognizes Gandhi. Uh, he's rosy. He knows him from the old yep. days. Has this whole litany of all the things that it used to be, which is a little gag. It's like, for me, this was a massage parlor. For then, it was a Republican headquarters. For that, it was stationery store. Gandhi. <laughs> yeah, uh, that's good. But uh, Gandhi tell, asks Rosie to put it out on the street that he's looking for whoever killed Lila because he didn't <laughs> do it. Uh, so once they get back on the street themselves. Jim, from our preview montage, you know, what do you think you're doing? There's a killer walking around out there. Right. Uh, I'm a PI, not a artillery spotter. He doesn't like the idea of a killer walking around. And now if they, if, if this killer knows that they're looking for him, right, that's, that's yeah. not a condition he's willing to work under. And he, and he tries to quit. This is where Gandhi's tactics and Rockford's tactics definitely diverge. Because mm-hmm. uh, you can imagine Gandhi, this is the fastest way Gandhi gets any information. To go to someone and say, I'm looking for this information and I'm Gandhi. You know, I'm going to gonna beat up uh, whatever I need to do, you know, mm-hmm. to, to, to get this information. But what I, I like about what happens here is that, like we were just saying before, that it's very likely that Rockford is appeasing Gandhi to keep him where he needs him. And Gandhi does the same thing mm-hmm. right here. And yes. it's... It, it's you can see it come across his face mm-hmm. where he's like, oh, I got to be nice. <laughs> and it's specifically in response to Jim being willing to fight him. <laughs> yes. Yes. You know, we can take care of this right now. Let's go into alley. And he says, I don't yes. need no alley. And then Jim looks all like nervous, but then kind of <laughs> swallows and like puts up his, his fists. Yeah. Like, OK, this is going to happen. <laughs> and I think I forget if it's now or later, but I think this is when he has the line of, uh, I'd rather spend a month in the hospital. Yes. Now this is it. Like, if you yeah. want to beat me up, fine. Beat me up. Uh, and that's what gets Gandhi to take a step back and be like, okay, fine. Yeah. We'll do it your way, Jim. My usual threats won't. won't. Yeah. And him backing down from Jim lets Jim kind of keep a little bit of his pride as mm-hmm. he says, okay, so if you're, if you'll let, let me do it my way, I'm still, I'm still on the case. I think this is where we kind of see the, the start of their like camaraderie really start building. And but it's important to note that uh, Gandhi maintains the status right because he still calls him Rockfish. Right. Like after all of that, it, it ends with whatever Rockfish. Yeah. <laughs> like I'll be nice to you, but you're still Rockfish, and uh, I think that's great. It's a great way of like we need to move it forward. We need that moment that. Uh, that forces Rockford to do take the case again. Uh, I'm thinking about Angel and how Angel has done it in the past by just suddenly turning like, "But aren't we friends?" Yeah, <laughs> you know, like just a very pathetic appeal. And uh, but in this case, he's he's like, "Okay, I'm, I'm not getting it this way. I'm going this way." But I'm also making sure that he knows that he's always Rockfish to me. Hmm. The very end of the scene after they uh, pull off pull, pull away in the Firebird is that we have a shot of a suspicious car 
um, yeah. across the street with a, a man watching, clearly watching them as they pull away. As the audience, we know that clearly something is going on. Yes. <laughs> Jim does have, does find this attorney. Uh, they have a whole back and forth where uh, he says that he doesn't do anything for free. And then as Jim keeps asking him questions, he keeps saying like, all right, you're getting into my time now. Like, you're going to have to start paying me, you know, like that kind of thing. So this is where we learned that uh, Gandhi used to work collections for local outfits. Uh, so he was, you know, uh, he was muscle, you know, collecting debts and whatever for, I mean, it's the mob implied, whatever the local crime situation was in the mid 50s. You know, he's known to be violent. He even tried to strangle the, his own attorney through the wire mesh at the jail uh, during the course of their interactions. And that the, the, this lawyer did, did what he could, but when Gandhi ran out of money, he went into the B&B file, which stands for Black and Broke, yeah. which I think is a very intentional piece of language uh, yeah. used here. A lot of the message that we're getting is that it's possible that the system has let Gandhi down and that's why we're in the situation that we're in. Yeah, he only had so much money. He could only afford this lawyer who we do not get very much confidence as a good lawyer. Yeah. <laughs> and then once the money ran out, he went, you know, black and broke. That's, yeah. you know, you end up at the bottom of the pile. And that's just how the system works, which, which, which is systematically unfair. We don't really know at this point whether it is or is not unfair to Gandhi in relevance to what he may or may not have done. Right. So a uh, lawyer tries to fob Jim off, but uh, Jim, this is when Jim reveals that, well, he'll just, he'll tell Gandhi uh, to come down here and do it and talk to him himself. That exchange. Say, when's he getting out? Yesterday, Mr. Prey. Yesterday. <laughs> <laughs> Look on that guy's face. Sweet move, Rockford. And then he opens the door mm -hmm. and there is a, uh, an ominous fitch. <laughs> Gandhi is just leaning in the doorway, looming, staring into the room. Uh, he's been there the whole time, which is a, a good a good moment. So they go down to the basement to find this file, because uh, all these files are in the basement, obviously. When uh, it is finally dug up, it is very thin. There's not a lot of information there. Jim has a line about, what, is this it? And it's like, well, it was all over by lunchtime. So the, the lawyer tries to kind of play nice, like, all right, I did what you wanted. You know, sorry again for all the trouble. And uh, Gandhi starts getting angry he feels like he was uh, uh maybe not betrayed but that he was you know ignored by this lawyer right like you took my yeah. money and then you sold me up the river and he goes uh goes aggro as i say in my notes uh <laughs> you know very physically intimidating the lawyer and 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 seeming seemingly on the verge of violence um and rockford talks him down in this moment uh ending with uh like he, he ain't worth it like what are you gonna what is this gonna get you like he's yeah uses some some logical appeals to uh talk down uh gandy as they leave we the camera takes us over to the uh suspicious car that now has a uh a young woman in it alongside the man so we see you know jim and gandy leave and get in the firebird and then uh these two start talking um about whatever their deal is so these are two young black people who are clearly following Gandhi. This is something yeah. to do with him, but we really don't get any details about this. This is just setting the stage for later. Uh, the guy's name is Arthur. I 
forget we don't hear the woman's name for a long time i forget what it is uh debbie uh yeah so we have arthur and debbie Arthur's saying that he he took down the license plate. He'll find out who that other guy is. Debbie is, she wants to know what's going on. She wants to know who that is. So they don't know who Jim is. This is about Candy. She's tired of waiting. And they start talking about they want to be, that they're sure of it. Whatever they're up to, they're, they're sure it's what they want to do. And they want to do it right. And we end with an ominous, his time is up. This is the uh, dramatic element here. Not least because they are young. You know, Gandhi is an older man. He's been in jail for 20 years. And everyone that they're going and talking to and interacting with about his past are all his generation for the most part. And then these two who are stalking him are early, mid-20s, maybe yeah. younger folk. So that is an interesting question. I'd like to point something out here. Um, we have seen this actor who plays Arthur before. Have we? Yes, he is McCool. In uh, I Still Love L.A. Yes. He's obviously not McCool here. Mm. Uh, he has a different name. But uh, he plays another cop. The cop that uh, um, gets the job that <laughs> Dennis thought was. Yes. Yeah. Right. So Arthur, we find out soon enough, is a cop. Yes. He then This actor then plays the cop that Dennis gets racist mad about for getting yes. his job. Yes. In the 90s? I went, yeah, I went looking for it because I was like, the picture of the actor is an older picture, not from that time. And I'm like, this guy is so familiar to me. He's in two other of the movies um, yeah. that I think we haven't done yet. But yeah, I, I forgot that this is his only Rockford Files episode appearance. But yeah, he's in yeah. the movies uh, in the 90s. Maybe he changes his name after these events and it is the same character. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Well, that's headcanon. Right. Yep. All right. So... Jim is looking through the file from the trial. Um, he, you know, he lays out how this does not look good for Gandhi. Um, uh, here's where we get the first mention of Eunice. Um, Eunice was Lila's best friend. There's a lot of kind of like some details about the background that come in different scenes. So I may be forgetting some of the order of events. They, they all work for this crime boss, Runkin. Um pebbles if you will but uh so eunice and lila were both prostitutes or eunice was still one and lila was one but then gandy didn't want her to be something like that and eunice was lila's best friend and gandy doesn't like eunice and as we find out eunice does not like gandy either and it was eunice's testimony that gandy uh, uh beat lila uh yeah you know was violent and that it was his you know and that he was the only one who would have been there, essentially her testimony plus the fingerprints that sent him to, to, to jail. Gandy says he doesn't have an alibi that he can prove. He was in the back room of a bar sleeping off a bender at the time. And I think through this, Jim keeps throwing each like element of like, here, here's the testimony, here's the evidence, you know. And Gandy basically just keeps maintaining his position. You know, I don't care what they all said. I didn't do it. I loved her. I couldn't have done that to her. And there's this bit where I have another note about how we, we kind of see their see their friendship grow even as they're kind of sparring here. Jim has something about, uh, I'm only, I only have like this much patience with you or something like that. Yeah. And he holds his fingers apart. And then Gandhi <laughs> smiles and holds his fingers apart just a tiny little bit. And he's like, all right, we're doing better. It used to be this far. Yeah. <laughs> You're coming around. We're getting somewhere with this. Um, and so maybe Jim's starting to believe him a little more. At least that he believes his own story. Yeah. Uh, but Jim wants to talk to Eunice. So she used to work for Gandhi's old boss, Pebbles. 
who Gandhi says is the only man that he was ever afraid of. Pebbles has a great name. Pebbles Runkin. A.K.A. Charles Pebbles yes. Runkin. Yeah, so they go to find him and they have a, a bit about how there was only one Runkin in the book. In, in the phone book, and it's this, like, big kind of corporate building that's the Charles Runkin building. <laughs> he must have really done well for himself. So we have a pretty pivotal scene here between Jim uh, Gandy and uh, Mr. Runkin, um, who's played by Alan Rich, who's one of those actors who's been in everything. But uh, I specifically noticed both an episode of Mrs. Columbo and an episode of The Incredible Hulk. So, Oh, which episode of The Incredible Hulk? <laughs> He's also in a Magnum PI, and he's he's been in a million things. But uh, oh wait, no, he's not this guy, is he? I assumed he was in other Rockford Files because he just has one of those like yeah. older mob guy faces. But no, this is his only Rockford episode. I have not seen this episode. Curses! Runkin's gone straight, obviously, right? Like this is his. He has an actual business. Um, he doesn't. He doesn't employ muscle anymore. Just lawyers. He remembers uh, Eunice, um, that she didn't like Gandhi because he stopped Lila from working. And there's a, a, a bit made about how she's one of the only people that uh, Pebbles would have let stop working because Gandhi was involved, is what it sounds like. Yeah. But that he heard that Eunice died in a car accident somewhere, somewhere in the Midwest. Gandhi, you know, is not particularly happy to hear that. He makes a play to, uh, to, 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 to Runkin saying he wants to come back to work. He can still be muscle, but he doesn't employ muscle anymore. Uh, your kind of muscle is just obsolete. If you need someone to strong arm someone, he pays some guys to come from out of state for two or three days and then leave. That's, that's how things work these days. Yeah. So sounds like this is the, you know, this is, this is the seventies mob, not the fifties mob. Yes. <laughs> They're smarter about this kind of thing. Jim tells Gandy to go wait for him at the car. Runkin wants to talk to Jim alone. And uh, he gives him a bunch of cash to to give to Gandy. Give him some new threads. He'll feel better in some new clothes. And Jim is suspicious of this whole thing. Right? Yeah. It's like, what is this? Jim. Conscience money? And so here, I think we see Jim just throwing out ideas just to see which way uh, yes. Runkin's going to jump. Because at no point have we established any of these as possibilities. I think this is just him seeing what happens when he pushes a little bit about some of these ideas. Um, so he asks why he why Pebbles let Gandhi get sent up get sent up the river, as he says. Um, you know, if he was so important to your operation and you liked him so much, why did you not interfere with his case? And at first, he's kind of like, "There wasn't something I could anything I could do." Blah blah blah. And Jim doesn't believe him. All right, so the truth was that the cops wanted him off the street, and they wanted him off, off the street so bad they were causing, they were chipping away at his uh, at his business in other ways. And so when this landed in their lap, it was just like a perfect storm kind of situation. He didn't even have to do anything. All he had to do was stay out of it. We're making the case right now for it being a very convenient arrest, right? right. Like, again, the, the system has let Gandhi down. It's worked against him. Mm-hmm. Um, and so Jim applies more pressure by saying that he'll, well, he, he'll tell Gandhi that uh, Pebbles framed him for the murder and then he can explain in person. Uh, Runkin says, all right, take a seat. And then we cut from that scene. Yeah. So clearly there's more to the story. We are not going to be privy to it at this time as audience members. So we get a little dramatic tension there. There's a line in all of that dialogue. I think it's right after um, 
right after Jim asks him if it's conscience money, mm -hmm. and he says, I don't even owe you a goodbye. Uh, Runkin says this, right? And this is this is one of the motifs that keeps showing up in this. Like, Jim owes Gandhi money. Hmm. Gandhi's job was to collect on debts. I don't owe you a goodbye, but here's money that, you know, like this guy feels that he owes Gandhi something. It's just one of the things I want to kind of put out there because it's going to kind of come to a head near the end about how all that's going to get together. We cut to Gandhi sitting uh, on a ledge around a fountain looking sad. Jim finds him. Eunice is dead. And Gandhi is sad about that because he thinks that she's the one who killed Lila. And so really what he was doing here was he wanted he wanted Jim to find Eunice to, to, to prove that it was Eunice. But he's known the whole time that Eunice killed Lila. And but if she's dead, you know, he can't get his revenge. Yeah. We're establishing here that Gandhi wanted to find her and kill her. Yes. Very specifically. Yes. But now he can't because she's already dead. This is again, this is one of those lines where at some point he says, I've never killed no one in my life. So I had one coming. Mm -hmm. Right. He's done the time for killing someone. Right. So he's owed a death. And uh, he intends to collect on that. Yeah. Let's see. Uh, Runkin gave Gandhi a grand to get some new clothes. Jim hands Gandhi a wad of cash. Gandhi pulls a couple of bills off of it and gives it back to Jim and says, don't tell anyone I tried to stiff you out of a finder's fee. Uh, and then they say so long. Yeah. <laughs> I love the the $1,000 to get some clothes. And he's like, I could buy a whole department store. <laughs> Yeah, and Jim says, you haven't gone shopping in a while, have you? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> There's this kind of mid kind of uh, act break, right? Where it's like, all right, from what we know, Gandhi's, his his motivation has been uh, curtailed. He can't do what he wants. He got some money. He and Jim are square, but we're, you know, halfway through the episode. So clearly, <laughs> we'll see see what else is going on. My notes say specifically, well, that was a quick episode. Happy... I need a quick break. I'm going to grab a taco. You tell our wonderful listeners all the places that they can find you and your work on the information superhighway. I'll be right back. One way to find me is to go to twitter.com and search for at Epidiah, E-P-I-D-I-A-H. I'm usually responsive there. Otherwise, you can go to worldswithoutmaster.com where you can find my sword and sorcery fiction and role-playing games. And if you like role-playing games, Maybe you want to check out digathousandholes.com, where uh, I publish all my other role-playing games. Oh no, I dropped my calculator. Nathan, while I go pick up a spare, why don't you tell the good folks uh, where they can find you on the internet? In addition to this podcast, I also design and publish role-playing games, including the worldwide wrestling, pro wrestling role-playing game, among many others. You can find links to all of my games and other projects at ndpdesign.com. And of course, you can find me on twitter.com at ndpaoletta. Looks like you're back. You you ready to continue the arithmetic analysis for this episode there, Epi? I'm back. I have my DM42 with me, and I'm ready to get in, dig down into Rockford's books again. Mm. All right, well, I'm done with this delicious avocado taco. Well, let's get back to the show then. I would like to say some sort of eulogy for this very next type of scene where we see a car pull up curbside outside the house and then someone get out of the car and walk up to the house. We don't see those anymore. Those are done. Those are, those are out of our vocabulary when it comes to 
watching things. We don't have enough time to watch people get out of cars. Let's just stop and watch a person pull up, park the car, get out, and walk to the front door. Why cut right to the front door? Why can't we just have, just enjoy the moment, people? That's my uh, lament, I should say. That's my lament of the state of things now. Epi's lament. Yes. (laughs) So shall it be called forevermore. Well, as you say, we see Jim pull up, park curbside, get out of the Firebird, walk up to the door, and knock at a, uh, at a at a nice house. Nice looking house. But we've established something. We've established that this is a nice house. Mm-hmm. It's a nice looking house. That he had to drive to get there. Mm-hmm. Uh, that it's a pleasant walk up the driveway. The door is answered. Uh, Jim asks, asks for a certain name. The woman says that's her. And then uh, he says, I know that you're Eunice. Um, and she seems surprised and startled but also is willing to talk to him. So mm. we quickly establish that this is indeed the Eunice that uh, we were told is dead. So uh, Eunice is played by Lynn Hamilton. My understanding is she is a very well-known actress in many things, but I have never seen any of them. So I would oh. <laughs> I would not have noticed uh, uh, in particular, but I think if you are more well-versed in cinema and TV than I am, you may recognize um, recognize her. Uh, she was in Sanford and Sons. She was in Roots. She was in The Waltons. She was in an episode of Knight Rider. <laughs> she was in Starsky and Hutch for an episode. Yeah, she was in. She was on The Practice. Um, yeah, just just throwing that out. Every so often, when I yeah. look at it, when I look at someone's credits, I'm like, oh yeah, this is someone that someone know that other people would know who they are. I yeah, just yeah. don't. <laughs> They've been out there. Yeah, she's great. She seems well. I'd say that her the portrayal of this character is perhaps oh, yeah. the most uh, soap opera-ish element of this episode, especially at the end. And she carries it off well. Mm-hmm. Uh, no, she's good. But yes, they, they go inside and we stay outside with the camera to see uh, the woman, Debbie, who has been following them all over the place, pull up outside this house, see Jim's car, and yeah. she herself parks curbside, gets out. And walks up to the door. See? See? You have a scene like that, then you can follow it up with a brilliant scene like that. That's all I'm saying. Is just invest in some of the mundanity. Some of the day-to-day. And I think the manner in which this is shot and her body language is such that she's just coming here and sees the car. And yes, is like, exactly. what is going on? So it's like she's coming home or she's She coming, hasn't been following Jim. But this is like her house or she has some relationship to Eunice, right? So inside, we get uh, Jim Jim and Eunice talking. Her deal is that she wanted to get out of being a prostitute. She quit the business. She found a, uh, she found a doctor to marry her, that she, that she wanted to marry and that wanted to marry her. And that uh, she asked uh, Pebbles to put out the word that she was dead around when they got married so that she could have this new life. Mm-hmm leave leave the uh the underworld if you will and and live this uh, new um kind of legit life so now that you know you probably want to blackmail my husband but he knows all about my past so that's right. not gonna work <laughs> right which i guess is a fair assumption and it sounds like she's encountered this before maybe right. like uh, she's she's handling it to preempt this kind of thing if it ever came up yeah or he told her husband but no jim doesn't really care about that he wants to know if she killed lila she he makes a mention of his client and she she asks, but it's clear that she kind of assumes or knows that 
this client is Gandhi. You know, she's scared of him and doesn't want Jim to tell Gandhi that she's alive for just the reason that we heard, because Gandhi will come and kill her. But Jim uses this as leverage to push her more, uh, which I think is kind of interesting. He says, well, tell me who killed Lila, or I will tell him that you're still alive. <laughs> so she she gives in. She says that uh, she was Lila's only friend. Um, every time Gandhi asked Lila to marry him, she said no. And then every time she said no, he would beat her up and then leave and go on a bender or whatever. So we're <clears throat> getting more authenticity for this other uh, possibility. Right. That Gandhi is guilty. Earlier in the episode, Jim did ask, like, asked him straight out, like, did you ever beat her up or something like that? Yeah. And Gandhi kind of deflected. Uh, he didn't deny, but he was very shifty about it. Right. And so now in this moment, I think we get a lot of, yeah, as you say, authenticity coming from mm-hmm. um, coming from Eunice. Like, she kind of has tears in her eyes. She's does not seem like she is lying or dissembling. We, we don't get any of those tells as audience members, right? They seem pretty, pretty legit. And Jim says that he believes her and, and tell and tells her, you know, just so you know, it's a long shot. But if Gandhi ever finds out you're alive, he yeah. does want to kill you. And then she asks, how did you find me? And we cut from there. <laughs> so it's not a joke in the cut, but it's no. a transition in the cut. Yes. Um, where she goes, how did you find me? And we go to Jim talking to Dennis about how he found her. Yes. I, w- I want to go into that in just a moment, but one thing I want to point out is the weird note about the crossword puzzles. Because mm-hmm. she says specifically in her sort of soliloquy about why she could never kill uh, Lila, uh, is that she's best friends with her or whatever. And like her only friend, basically. Her only friend, yeah. And and part of her evidence for this was that she got her hooked on crossword puzzles. Mm-hmm. And this stuck out to me, because this... I don't. I'm not going to complain about this, but I want this. This definitely had this feeling of dear mystery fan. Mm-hmm. Yes. Here's a clue. Pay attention to this. It wasn't well seated. I guess is what it, it sticks out. It's a little. It's a little rough. But I'll also point out that that trips me up later on. Mm-hmm. I, I I place way too much emphasis on the crossword puzzles than I than I should. Later, like there's another conversation where this is a callback, or not mm-hmm. a callback, but it's kind of important to the flow of the conversation this yeah. little detail about the crossword puzzles and i was like oh, okay i mean to me it was more like oh here is a an interesting detail to add veracity like to add some kind of lived inness to this yeah. world it didn't stick out to me quite as much as pay attention to this <laughs> See, you're just too suspicious you're just looking for clues everywhere i am i am always on the lookout for clues um so jim's talking to dennis that he basically he i love this scene so, so we get to see Jim doing some some PI work here, right? Right. So he uh, wired for the, the vital statistics from 1956 because he knows that she got married a year after Lila was killed. And we know that was 1955. And we know that she married a doctor. So he found all the MDs who were married in L.A. <laughs> uh, in 1956. And the ones that were still in L.A., he knocked on all the doors until he got to the one where she answered yeah. to the name of Eunice. Yes. <laughs> she was the eighth one, the eighth house that he went to or something like that. This is a, a, a like a YouTube magic trick, right? Where Yeah, this is this is a this is definitely a uh, uh, not magician's choice, but it's a this is a magician's head fake where they're like I'll I'll show you I can flip heads on this coin every time 
10 times in a row. Mm -hmm. And what you don't know is that they just filmed hundreds of hours of flipping a coin until they got that row of 10 heads <laughs> and then just showed you that footage. Yeah. The, the seven people that or the seven women that he was like, and I know you're Eunice, whatever. And they went, no, I'm not. And he's like, yeah, thank you for your time. Right. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> until he got to the one who was like, Oh my God, you know, and it seems like he's this brilliant, this, this brilliant detective. And he is a brilliant detective. Yes. But it's through the legwork of all those, of all those negatives. This is, one of the things that sets Jim apart from a lot of detective stories, it's not that he's smart. It's just that he's, he's willing to do the work. Yeah, yeah, he just does the work. He says, uh, another thing I love about this scene, I mean, I know what you love about this scene. And we, <laughs> we will definitely go there. But before we do, another thing I love about this scene is the idea that Jim and Dennis would sit down and have lunch and just talk about work problems. Yeah, yeah. We do this. We mm -hmm. like before every time we do a podcast, we sit down and we're like, "Okay, why does it suck publishing role playing games?" <laughs> <laughs> Let me tell you how it sucked for me recently. Yeah, and uh, or, you know, just like yeah, no, you're just kind of like talking shop and catching up. Yeah, yeah, and I just like I'm a sucker for those moments in television shows in general when you show uh, why a well standing relationship between two characters exists, right? Because mm -hmm. if it's well-standing, we just take it for a given that it exists. And oftentimes, television shows are based on the tension between the, you know, in that relationship. Mm -hmm. And certainly, Dennis and Jim is no exception here. Like, those two are at odds in this episode, in every episode. <laughs> They're just always at odds. So the moments when they show them as, like, oh, that's right. This is what they're like when the drama is not doesn't require the camera, right? Like this mm. is this is their normal Thursday afternoon lunch. Jim happens to be around so he drops by to like yeah, get lunch with Dennis or whatever. Much like how I did a eulogy for the for pulling up the car or a lament mm. for that being gone, I would also make a plea for this and maybe a stronger plea for more of these. I just the casual Every day, oh, this is why these people actually like each other, why they talk to each other. And of course, what I love about this scene is that when Dennis asks, Hey, do you want any chili? Jim says, I've had plenty. Yeah. <laughs> yes. I don't think that means anything. I think he literally has just like had yeah. too much chili. Yeah. We should point out the, the few viewers who have not watched the episode and are just listening to our commentary on it. That they're sitting there eating chili out of cans, like Hormel canned chili or something like that. And they've both finished one, and Dennis is ready to dig into another one. This scene is so real to me that I can smell <laughs> <laughs> the canned chili when he opens it up. Like, I'm like, oh God, I know what that's like. And I, I haven't had it for years. So now we have a mystery, though, of like who killed Lila, right? Mm. Jim is now on Gandhi's side here where he's like yeah. okay you didn't kill her i get it and now he's kind of like so what happened so he doesn't think it was runkin he doesn't think it was eunice he doesn't think it was gandy and he has this line where he says probably like and it probably wasn't the cops or it doesn't make sense that it was the cops or something and dennis is like what yeah it's a possibility <laughs> this is great yes the it wasn't cops and dennis gives him a glare and he's like it could have been it could have been i don't think it was but it could have been and uh that was great um so Dennis wants to know why he still seems so worried because, you know, 
he's out from under it. Gandhi thinks Eunice is dead. He's done with what he wants. Then, of course, uh, by the law of, of dramatic timing, the phone rings. Dennis answers it. And uh, they picked up Fitch for loitering and attempted assault of an officer. Oh, God. It was only attempted assault because the officer had mace. <laughs> Uh, he mentions that they set his bond at ten thousand dollars because they don't want him out on the streets so jim pulls out a hundred dollar bill i'm going to need to give this back to gandy because he's going to need the full thousand for bond so now we've established that gandy gave jim a hundred dollars yes his ten percent finder's fee right and now uh he's going to need it back dennis says you're not going to have a single friend in pasadena and jim says what about the one I have there now? Yeah. All right. Ooh, loving this moment. Mm-hmm. Not going to love it that much when we get near the end. I know, I know. <laughs> but this is a good, like, Jim is a good friend. Sometimes he makes bad choices about who he's friends with. Yes. But if he feels that bond, he'll be there for you. Uh, we go to the uh, police station in Pasadena, where Jim has helped Gandhi pay his bail. Uh, they're leaving the, the station. There's a line where, where Gandhi's like, no one told me they have mace. Apparently another thing that was not around in the 50s. One more way in which Gandhi has gone obsolete. Right. So, fun fact, mace apparently was invented in 1965. Oh, so there we go. Yeah. Uh, so while they're, you know, having, we're hearing their dialogue, but we have another of these really kind of ominous uh, discovery shots. We're seeing this from like a ground up angle. And in the foreground is this pair of boots, like a uniformed cop standing there and kind of moves into the frame and then stops. And it's very clear that that they have stopped because they are watching Jim and Gandhi leave. And there's even this moment where Gandhi kind of like looks at them like over the camera. And Jim's like, leave it. (laughs) Let's go. Keep walking. Yeah. Uh, as they leave, the ca- camera pans up and uh, the cop turns and takes his sunglasses off, which he's wearing at night. And it is <laughs> our young man from earlier, Arthur. I have a moment with this. I guess the reveal here is that Arthur is a cop. Right. But I had this brief moment where I was like, is he disguising himself as a cop to watch over? Like, it just felt... In their first dialogue, Arthur and um, Debbie... In my notes, I was like, is he a PI? Because he's like, I took down a license plate. I'll find out who that was. Yeah. And then I'm like, oh, he's a cop. Okay. Yes. Yes. But yeah, was he a PI pretending to be a cop? Now we're getting like ninth yeah. dimensional chess about uh, yeah. <laughs> something that is not actually a mystery. He just is a police officer. Yeah. So uh, Gandhi says he wants to check out some things. He's been talking to different people and he's heard all these different stories about Eunice. She went to New York. She died in a car crash in the Midwest. She died in a car crash in Louisiana. And so he's a little suspicious, it sounds, of this story. Um, He says that she's smart enough to fake her own death because she knows that Gandhi will come looking for her. And we kind of see the, like, fear in Jim's eyes, right? (laughs) This is a really good, like, body language and kind of facial expression acting sequence where Jim clearly is like, oh, my God, I have to keep him from doing this because he's going to find her. (laughs) Jim's in a tight spot twice over here, right? Mm -hmm. Because he doesn't want anything bad to happen to her. But also, he has found her. Right. And as far as Gandhi knows, Jim is off the case. Yeah, he is lying to Gandhi about the fact that he yeah. knows that Eunice is alive and where she is. He asks if Jim wants in, and Jim says, 
for what accessory to murder <laughs> yeah and jim throws out a couple different gambits to like get gandy not to go off without him right now it's like let's go play some pool and he's like no well i want to talk to you about who killed lila i have something we'll talk about it just stay with me stay with me yeah. uh so they do go to play pool they apparently are betting and there's a moment where jim's offering a double or nothing on a, on a shot <laughs> yeah he's trying to earn his debt back here this is yeah they do finally get around to talking about the case. And so Jim, I think here, it's interesting because it's like, what what does he actually have to talk to, to tell Gandhi, right? And right. so he actually just starts asking Gandhi questions. And he asks why Lila never married him. Um, the, the important stuff that comes out of this is that he he admits that, that, that he would beat her after mm-hmm. she would refuse to marry him. That she left a couple of times and he didn't know where she went. And she was gone for six months one time and seven months another time, but she always ended up coming back. Yeah. Uh, we see him getting a little suspicious about how Jim found out these very specific questions to ask. It's like, oh, well, I was talking to Rosie and, you know, because he remembers Eunice from the old days. And yeah. uh, and he mentions something about the the crossword puzzle. Like, he told me that she was always bringing those, those puzzle books in to Lila. And Gandhi has a moment where he's like, yeah, she got really good at those, too. It was like he uses that little detail to establish some kind of authenticity about his yeah. his story. This is this is a tough conversation. It is a tough right? conversation. There, okay, so this show is from the seventies, and they're threading a, a very fine line here uh, mm. that today would probably go a very different route. Mm-hmm. It, it's definite now that Gandhi had beat her, right? Like that's just the thing, and. Uh, there's two ways to read what's going on here uh, that Rockford is helping a friend out or Rockford is trying to maintain control of a possibly explosive violent situation. I mean, it's kind of both. Yeah. It's somewhere in between because they have like more moments here of like, kind of like laughing at jokes. Yeah. Having these moments where it's like Jim does want to make things better for Gandhi. He likes Gandhi. Yeah. And we're seeing that solidify, even as we're hearing how Gandhi is a violent man who beat up his girlfriend and would not take no for an answer and refused to let her go and to go anywhere. Right. So she had to like disappear on him and all this stuff. And it's like, this is an abusive man. Yes. He did bad things, but we're seeing Jim, we're seeing more of their fondness for each other also coming through and how they're physically interacting. It's very weird in to, to, to me personally. I mean, so one thing we, we do know uh, is that uh, abusive people can be charismatic, right? Like that's mm-hmm. a fact. And one thing this show, this episode has done uh, is shown that a lot of people genuinely like Gandhi. Yeah. Rosie likes Gandhi. Pebbles offers money that he doesn't have to offer mm-hmm. to, to help out Gandhi. Um, Jim would definitely subject to some of that as well, right? Mm-hmm. Like this is just, uh, uh, he's a personable dude who's definitely got problems. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, this is where the show goes from like, it, it just, it keeps hinting all along that it's going to go here. And then when it went here, I like, it, yeah, it set me back a little bit. I was like, Oh, that's, Right. Oh, damn it. Yeah. And and the scene ends with Gandhi straight out saying, if Eunice is still alive, I'm going to waste her. Yeah. 
this guy is the villain of the piece. Mm. And it's, I, I don't want to say it's hard not to like him, but it's not like Isaac Hayes isn't playing him likable, right? Yeah. Like that, like the, they're, they're presenting this character that is both the villain of the piece and also like, if you're not careful, you can overlook that. Mm-hmm. So one of our episodes from um, the beginning of this year, uh, episode 44, Kill the Messenger, that's the one where Dennis has to investigate the murder of his boss's wife, essentially, right? And we talked at the end of that one about how characters can be framed uh, to be more or less sympathetic to the audience. Yeah. How a show frames the same set of actions with the agenda to increase buy-in to them by the audience or to create distance from the audience. Mm -hmm. And this episode is all about creating buy-in for Gandhi in terms of how he's framed, I think. Yeah. Um, Which is uncomfortable. Yeah. We'll get to why at the end uh, for sure. But on the one hand, I'm all for complex characters who go through change and make mistakes and have to make good for things they've done or or Mm -hmm. realize that their actions have consequences or whatever but on the other hand at the end of the day there's some people i just don't want to feel sympathy with yeah yeah exactly and the fact that this episode is like you should feel sympathy with this guy who has been mistreated in many ways but he also has done some pretty unforgivable things so yeah uh that's where this scene is where that really like snaps into focus and i start and I start realizing that I have to actively resist the sympathy stuff, like the the way that the episode is framing him as sympathetic. Yeah. Personally, yeah. or else it just gets too grim for me. Not to say again that it's bad. No. It is not poorly done. It is not ham-fisted. It is not, uh, I don't even think it's, I think it's intentional. Like they cast Isaac Hayes to be this character and it's a yeah. charismatic person playing an interesting character. But the the media landscape of the time I think allows for this in a way that would be, it would stick out like a sore thumb today. If this show was, if this script was shopped to a show, right? Yeah. Um, All right. All of that said, uh, we still have a mystery here who killed Lila. So we have a short talking to folks montage where we see uh, Arnold and Debbie following uh, Gandhi and Jim around as they talk to people on the street. They end up at a bar um, they talk to someone else who says like, oh, I heard that she died in a car crash. And then the bartender gets a phone call and comes over and says, there's one of you looking for someone named Eunice or something yeah. like that. We, we cut back and forth. There's no mystery here. It's um, um, Debbie is calling from a payphone and tells Gandhi that if he wants to know where Eunice is, he should go you know, stand on this certain corner by a gas station um, and she will take him to her. Jim, of course, is suspicious. She specifically says to ditch your friend, you know, come alone. But Gandhi is not willing to pass this up, even though I think he probably knows there's something going on. Uh, we have a moment where Jim says that, don't worry, he'll he'll watch Gandhi's back. Yeah. Uh, and then a quick bit about settle up this tab. You know, where's my change? Assuming <laughs> assuming drafts haven't gone up to 250 a pop. Yes. Uh, so Gandhi goes out to wait. Debbie picks him up. Yes. Uh, we see that Jim follows, of course. Gandhi asks why she's doing this. Uh, she says that Eunice wants to talk to him too. Your friend talked to her yesterday, but he wouldn't set it up. And we see Gandhi look not happy that Jim knew about this. So my note here is, is she setting Eunice up? 
Like, is she bringing Gandy to Eunice so that he will kill her and then go to right. jail? Like, yeah, that's kind of so what I was thinking in this moment. We've not gotten much about them or their motivation. Uh, they do have a plan for Gandy. One that, uh, if I if I may quote, uh, she specifically asks her partner, did we ever plan to do it wrong? <laughs> when he's like, I just want to make sure we do it right. Do we ever plan to do it wrong? Like, this is a thing that they've, they've had in the works for a while. Right. Again, it's been a while since I've seen this episode. Uh, I don't remember the twists and turns. And I have uh, gotten this moment in mind where I'm like, wait a minute. Is this like a really weird thing where Eunice is really Lila? Yeah, yeah. Something like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and that's me grabbing the thread of the crossword puzzle and just unraveling it as much as I can <laughs> and going. It's like, is she a criminal mastermind? This, I'm going to have a TV show based on me at some point. Epi pi where uh, just, <laughs> we just completely overcomplicate things yeah exactly yeah but no they do not go to eunice's house they go to a park um she takes gandy um to kind of a playground area and we have this really uh dramatically framed shot where they come around this corner into arthur in uniform holding a gun gandy of course is surprised she leaves Gandy and goes to stand next to Arthur, takes out a gun of her own out of her purse. Arthur says that, uh, I heard her screaming. You were trying to rape her. I had to kill you to, to stop yeah. you or something like that. Um, and Gandy, of course, is surprised. And he's like, I don't even know you. Like, who are you? <laughs> right? <laughs> um, and they say that they know him. And they've been waiting for this for a long time. And then we have a Jim to the rescue as he leaps off of a wall and onto our cop. This is an extended action scene here. That that... yeah, this is an extended action sequence, and it's it's pretty well. I mean, it's it's pretty good. It's not a beach; it's like a sandbox or something. Yeah, it's like a playground in the middle of a of a park. Playground with very convenient blind blind yeah like walls that block line of sight and yeah no it's good. Jim jumps Arthur, uh, and they're rolling around on the ground, right? Yeah, and, and like, gets his gun, has kind of has the drop on Debbie. He has Arthur's gun. You know, I'll shoot if you don't drop your gun. So Debbie drops her gun. So we get into an equilibrium where we have mm-hmm. Gandy and Jim standing next to each other. Jim has the gun, and then the other two are standing across from them. Um, the first thing that happens is that Gandy accuses Jim of talking to Eunice. <laughs> Jim denies it, and he says, I wouldn't know her from my grandmother or something like that. She wouldn't know her either. And then Debbie says, of course I know her. She's my mother. <laughs> and that's when Gandy just hauls off and plows a haymaker oh. across Jim's face. Sends a cartwheeling, practically. Oh, yeah. it's, a good, it's a good moment. And also, like, Gandy is, his executive faculties are not yeah. his strongest suit. It's like, you've been lying to me. I'm going to punch you, even though these this, two are trying to kill me. This is how we're solving it right now. Boom. So we have another scuffle. There's yelling in this scuffle. Uh, he jumps uh, Arthur and starts beating him up. He like body slams him into the ground, which is pretty incredible. Um, while Jim scuffles for the gun with Debbie. Why, and so some of this dialogue is while all this action is happening, right? Yeah. Why do you want to kill Gandy? Uh, because he killed their real mother. Dun, dun, dun. Jim yells at Gandy to stop before he just like, you know, beats uh, Arthur unconscious. So he's your father? And they're like, no, he's not our father. They're raised out of state, but he made our mom a prostitute and then killed her. You know, Gandy's like, I didn't kill her, right? I never did. And so there's all this confusion, all this yelling back and forth. 
I'm just making notes. I'm a little unclear about what is being like, what is what is legit and what is according with what we already know and what's new. This is very chaotic. Um, We end the scene with with uh, Jim still in control, essentially. And Gandy looks at Debbie and says that uh, she has Lila's eyes. Yeah. Jim says, we'll find out when we ask Eunice. Oh, yeah. Dun, dun, dun. So we have a big, big sit down dramatic reveal to discover the heart of our mystery here. Inside Eunice's house by a roaring fire. Mm-hmm. This has a feel of a uh, murder mystery. I now have you all together. We're going to find out who really did kill Lila. When I say this has the feel, I mean the setting of this scene has the yes. feel. The rest of the episode doesn't lead to that. Nobody behaves like that except for maybe Eunice. But the setting itself is the, exactly the kind of setting where you would expect the ending of a clue game to take place. Yes. So what we learn is that so these two are, in fact, Lila's children. Eunice wanted them to be safe, have a good life and hate mm-hmm. Gandalf Finch as much as she did. Oh, yes. The So the two times that Lila disappeared for six months and seven months, those were when she was pregnant and she went back to stay with her family because she was scared that Gandy would force her to marry him if he knew she was pregnant. But yes. then once she had the child, her family kicked her back out because she's this prostitute that they don't actually want to have around, I guess. So then she goes back to L.A., ends up back with Gandy. The system repeats. Um, in here is where they talk about the newspaper clipping. She shows them the newspaper. So that, that's how they know what Gandy looks like. Oh, yeah. She sent it to them when he got arrested or something. Yeah. Okay. We're about to get into some dark, dark here. Yeah. But I will note that the Jim's description of this newspaper clipping is the one with Gandy having one cop under his arm and one in each hand by the hair. Right. And I have to say, I do like that image. Yeah. yeah this is the one like little moment of levity in this yeah. whole sequence. Yeah. yeah. But uh, Arthur says that they looked at that picture a lot. Yeah. And, you know, and so Gandhi still, you know, is like, I, I didn't kill her. <laughs> right. Like, right. Uh, but Eunice has a letter that Lila mailed the day she died. And Debbie says, I'll read it. She's about to hand it to Jim. Yeah. For Jim to read it. And Debbie's like, no, I'll read it. I'm like, hell yeah, you will. Like, <laughs> this is in Jim's place. Right. And also Eunice is saying, I, I was hoping this day would never come, but I must have thought that it would someday because I still have this letter, right? Like that's kind of the soap opera-y element here. Eunice's role in this moment is of that murder mystery character, yeah. right? Like, but yeah. So, uh, not going to go through this blow by blow, but basically this letter, which Debbie reads in its entirety and she starts crying and it's very disturbing, yeah. uh, is a suicide note. Yes. Lila writes that she's at the end of her rope, essentially. She can't stand living with Gandy and all of his jealousy. Either he has to die or she does. And so yeah. she's choosing to take her own life to get out of this situation. You know, she's going to take her own life, making sure that it looks like he did it. Yeah. She wants him to be blamed for it. Uh, Gandhi caused every tear. He never kissed one away. Oof. Yeah. Let's get into the grimness here because, <clears throat> so this is horrible. You spend most of the episode. Well, I, I shouldn't say you, uh, but I spent most of the episode thinking, yeah, this is going to be Gandhi. Yay. Gandhi. Gandhi's fun. And then, 
mm-hmm. slowly it dawns on me, oh, Gandhi's a sh-. Mm-hmm. And then this, where it's not just suicide, like, because she stabs herself with his knife. Yeah. Eh, maybe we don't want to go all the way into this with our episode here. Top level, it's, it's not just, I can't take this anymore, I'm taking my own life. This is, this is a, a final statement that yeah. is irrevocably making the case that Gandhi is the one who drove her to this. Right. That she does not love him. Right. Like, that's the whole thing. He's like, I've loved her. I kept on wanting her to marry me. She said, no, I kept on coming back because I loved her so much. And this very specifically is like, I do not love him. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's it's taking away the whole foundation that he has for his own conception of what their relationship was mm-hmm. in a way that does not absolve him of anything. If yes. anything, it makes it worse. And Gandhi hears it. Yes. Like, th- that is a thing throughout this episode. Uh, you can kind of get him to play along with you for a while, but he can't hear you, right? Like he's he's not believing the things that you're saying or uh, he's gonna do his thing. Mm-hmm. And this is the first time he actually hears something and it is hard, hard news to hear. Credit to Isaac Hayes, who you know is near, yeah. the, near the beginning of his acting career here. It's not like he's been in lots of stuff and there's a lot of subtlety to his physical reaction to hearing these words and we see as audience that he is feeling the his whole foundation wash away of everything that he thought about this relationship yeah and this dawning realization of how there's no like light at the end of this tunnel there's no one to blame except him he's been operating for so long on this whole like i am blameless here right i did not kill her therefore i am i am not at fault and it's like no you are at fault like 100 percent and you're at fault for precisely the reason you keep giving for why you aren't at fault. Right. Yeah. It has the, it's not in the sense of beauty, but it's a poetic justice. Yeah. Like it's, I mean, and it's not really justice either, but it's the, the symmetry there is, it is a well considered, well written resolution that totally makes us a character that I feel bad for having liked. Yeah. I made a mistake as an audience member investing myself in this character. Yes. Is how I, how I feel here. So yeah. And then the end of the scene is he just gets up and silently walks out of the room and out of the house with his head bowed, crushed under the weight of this revelation. Yeah. Good times. The episode takes a turn there. Yeah. And then we have a little final scene, which is actually probably the most problematic part of this episode. (laughs) Yeah. So the scene is, Rockford and Gandhi, right? Mm. And it's Rockford, and they're just outside the house. Yeah, and he's he's trying to he's trying to comfort Gandhi, and that's I think part of where that problem comes in, right? Uh, I, I keep mentioning throughout there's this motif and mm-hmm. having something do, and this is the I guess kind of the thesis here where 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 it comes together because you know Gandhi's already stated that he's done the time for a murder. Now I think Rockford tries to make the case that like, well, you've done the time for the murder. Now you need to, you know, but yeah. Oh man. The way that he tries to comfort. So the motivation of like, I want to comfort my friend who just experienced something devastating. That is understandable. Yeah. I get it. But what he chooses to comfort Gandhi with is trying to kind of absolve him of responsibility. Yes. And that is not even that that hasn't aged well. Like I think that was that's a bad call in this episode, and it's a bad call now. 
he tells Gandhi that it, it was her choice to kill herself, that it was her choice to come back every time that she left. And that yeah. means that Gandhi can't blame himself. Yeah, that's not good at all. That is, that is, I mean, that is victim blaming. Yeah, yeah. Those are words of someone who just does not, has not experienced and does, and has, has not thought about or been told about uh, how abuse works. Mm-hmm. That's, uh, you know, that jumped right out <laughs> as I was yeah. making my notes. Yeah. I was like, Jim, <sighs> no, no, that's, yeah. oh, no, bad. That's not, <sighs> it's not okay. So that sucks. And I kind of, I wish that this episode did not have those lines in it. Because I think they are irresponsible. Yeah, I guess is how I would is how I would characterize it. I don't think it's a huge character flaw for Jim. You know, like it is clearly in context of this episode and this moment, um, and it's what what our writer Gordon Dawson decided to put in here. And I think it was a port, it was a inappropriate choice. Um, this is also touching on kind of the systemic stuff, where it's like you went out and collected a rotten life and just ate the balloon payments, which is yeah. a very Rockfordy kind of phrase. But it is a little bit like, yeah, the system rigs against you, man. Like, yep. that's also kind of not your fault, which is fair. Um, but then we end here with Jim saying, that's all over. We now know what happened. You can walk out and be free and clear of all of this if you want to be. And then I think in an appropriate final line, we end our episode with the camera on Gandhi. If I want to be. And we freeze. We freeze frame there. I guess my read on that is Gandhi is not automatically jumping at this idea of absolving himself of responsibility. Yeah. Uh, it adds to the complexity of this. Yeah, it's it's a tough one to look at, right? Because he isn't. Jim's in the, the sort of in the situation trying to make it so that nobody does any more harm to each other, maybe, mm-hmm. you know, like as a, as a a generous read on what's happening here. Well, and also like there's no revenge to be had, right? Like you've been yeah, looking for yeah. revenge, but there's none to be had. And and now like your slate's kind of clean, right? You don't know anything. Yeah. No one knows you. You can, you can move on. It's at least a good sign that the Gandhi is willing to own this. Uh, not ready to just straight up forgive himself because right. the whole time his, his story has been that he's innocent and that's changed. And I think, that's part of what makes this episode very interesting. As as difficult as it is, uh, going back over it, like and seeing where they laid some groundwork for it, where they let you know early on that there's some hints about this. The fact that Gandhi is always throughout a physical threat to to people, right? Like mm. he's um, the the only person he actually beats up is Rockford. <laughs> Yeah, well, yeah. I guess, and Arthur at the very, at, in that last like, yeah, fight. Yeah, in that scuffle. Um, so I guess the thing that, that when I got done with this, where this left me sitting is I was like, this is missing from future episodes with Gandhi in it, right? Yeah, we just kind of move on with him as a little more of like the goofy character. Yeah. And we kind we, of drop this background. We get like the Gandhi from the, before the first commercial break of this episode, right? Like, you know, that, um, because, well, I shouldn't say because, but you can see that there's a chemistry there. There's a, a show to be had there. This felt like an episode that was one and done, right? Like this episode yeah. felt like, oh, we're going to tell this tragic story here and that's it. 
and then they're like, we really liked having Isaac Hayes on set. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right? Which is uh, fine. Like, that's not the worst. As, from a production standpoint, that's kind of a neutral reaction. It is weird that... Not weird, because it is an episodic show, right? It's not yeah. these long-term story arcs. So it is kind of like, what about this character is fun to watch? Yeah. Because we don't want to retread this story over and over. No. <laughs> yeah. Um... So it disappears, and I have I forgot completely about it. I, yep, I know you did too. Sure did. <laughs> uh, so it's interesting to see that that sort of shift, and it's a, something that shows up a lot in uh, a lot of serial fiction, right? Like a lot of times, mm. this happens with comic book heroes all the time. They'll have like a big dramatic beginning, and then uh, that will have like a certain bend to the story and then they're like well now we've got our i'm trying to think of a generic superhero name here (laughs) possum woman and we're gonna tell possum woman stories about somebody with those powers and just ignore this weird origin story that we had to write because we just wanted to tell a weird origin story Mm. they wanted to tell this story and then when they got done they felt there was leftover material i don't know i'm babbling now (laughs) no i mean i think it's like again, you know, I, I don't think it's ninth dimensional chess. It's yeah, we like this actor, we like this character. Let's bring mm-hmm. him back, and like here's another here's another story that he's in. And this show is not beholden to its previous episodes in the way yeah. that a Sunday comic strip, you know, like Peanuts, is not really beholden to the last year's Peanuts strip. Sure, if you read them all back to front and go through them in order, there's stuff where it's like. <laughs> this kid moved and now they're back or whatever. And it's kind of like, yeah, that was never intended to be a long-term thing. So we're saying that in context of having seen the second episode that he's in, right? Which is, as we said, the Gandhi and Gabby one, which is essentially, it's a a backdoor pilot for those two characters that they decided not to do anything with. And it is more of a humorous episode. and It's kind of a romp. So the third episode, which is, um, called Second Chance. So so two things. First of all, it's with Diane Warwick. So oh. that's pretty cool. But it's, <laughs> so A, it's called Second Chance. It's about Gandhi who has, who has gotten a new like job and has like a new life, falling in love with this new woman, right? But then the plot revolves around she's kidnapped by an old, by her ex-husband. Ah. I don't remember all the ins and outs, but between it being called Second Chance and it being about Gandhi in a new relationship that is then threatened. Yeah. And it's also written by Dawson. It's the same screenwriter. I wonder if we should actually watch that one next. Let's do that. So that this one's fresh and we can see how much continuity there is of this character. Just another Polish wedding. Is that in between these two or it's after the the second one? Uh, It is in between these two. All right. There's this one, which is season two. Just another Polish wedding in season three, and then second chances near the beginning of season four. Yeah, let's do that. Uh, I think that we definitely have a, a more informed thing to say about all of this after yeah. seeing that episode. I think kind of my reaction at the at the end there was like I felt like the the episode was kind of building up a redemption arc, right? For yeah. Gandhi, like okay, he beat her up, he was abusive, but he did do all this time. Where is this going? Is this going to him mastering his violent impulses so that real justice can be done for whoever did kill her? Right? Like, yeah. you can kind of see that arc of of some kind of redemption story. And I'm like, I don't know if this is the kind of character that I want to see get a redemption story. But 
And then we see that that's not what this is. This is a, it's not even a twist. It's not a gotcha, but it's, if you look at this character's story with all of the information, he is not, he is a villain, right? Like he is, he is the bad guy here, but he doesn't really know that until the end himself. And that's a weird place to be as an audience member, like, because you kind of want, it's framed so that you're rooting for him, yeah. right? You want to see him overcome these obstacles. Uh, and then it's like, n- no, he needs to do the work to overcome his own issues in a way that is not going to create more harm, right? Yeah. I will say this. I think it's a good episode. <laughs> yeah. What I'm stumbling over at the end here is just having... Uh, things to say about it because it is so fraught uh and the handling of it i like well okay let me say this it was a very well crafted episode Mm -hmm. and um i do find myself doing some mental gymnastics to have to to look at jim in a good light by the at the very end of the episode right right i think he made a mistake right yeah so okay so Jim Rockford isn't a real person, right? So yeah. if he was a real person, this would be a more this would matter more what we thought yeah. about what he about his his opinion here at the end, right? Yeah. Um in the context of the single episode, it's like I see what the point of it was in terms of paying out the the, the idea that Jim and Gandhi have a have a friendship, have a bond and that Jim wants Gandhi to move on. Like, Jim's yeah. trying to give him the tools to absolve himself and, and move on. And I just think the way that he chooses to say that are with words that are not an appropriate way to respond to abusers. Yeah. I don't... That doesn't mean that Jim's a bad character or that he's... No, no. You know, like, he says lots of... He says sexist things. He's not a paragon of... No, he's fallible, definitely. Yeah, he's he's fallible. Um, So my mental gymnastics are more about, like... You got me invested in Gandhi as an interesting, sympathetic character. Yeah. But he turns out to have done things that I do not want to be in sympathy with. Yes. And I think it is it is wrong to frame uh, to frame media in such a way as to as to make that to make an abuser a sympathetic character. However, as someone who you know also believes in restorative justice and the ability of people to change, he is also being set up as someone who has has gone to prison, done all that time been subject to uh, systems that dealt him a bad hand, right? Um, those things don't counterweight, like those things don't don't cancel out what he did. But in this third episode, do we see him demonstrate growth and change? Right. I am, I'm cautiously optimistic that I will be able to allow him back into my sympathetic heart. Yes. If that, if that, care is given to the writing and to the character you know it's a it's, it's a weird balance and maybe i'm not expressing it very well no no i i, I see what you say I, I think i'm right there with you uh yeah <laughs> what i'm trying to do now is sum this up so we can bring it to so we can end the episode <laughs> yes yes so i guess to be continued i guess so yeah we didn't <laughs> We didn't intend to go into a two-parter, and it's not really a two-parter, but no. yeah, we will, uh, our, our plan, as as you've heard in real time, will be to watch um, Second Chance, uh, yes. and we'll come to it fresh with our experiences from this episode. We'll try to take it on its own terms, of course, but also see how uh, this character is handled and how this story is handled. Yeah. And uh, see what happens, because 
just because the Rockford Files was a great show doesn't mean that it always hits it out of the park or that it's always on the right side of history. And yeah. this is a great episode with problematic elements that I think is certainly worth watching, but also you kind of have to keep an eye on what it's doing. Yeah. Yeah. Or else it puts you in a real weird place right at the end. <laughs> Watch from an informed standpoint. All right. <laughs> That said... does feel like we earned our 200 for a day. Yes. I certainly, uh, even if it has gone up to 250 a, a pop, I'm ready yeah. to go get my draft beer from the bar <laughs> at the end of this one. So, as always, we will be back next time to talk about another episode of The Rockford Files. <laughs>